If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Psalm 63. Psalm 63. So my intention and the notes that you received was for me to preach all of Psalm 63. I decided to punt on that and just cover the first four verses, all right? So we're only going to cover one of the three points that you have. So we're going we're gonna to cut two-thirds of it, all right? Usually, nobody, somebody told me one time, no Baptist ever cares if the message is briefer, right? Like, so uh, I figured you guys would be all right with that. So Merry Christmas to you. So if you're at Psalm 63, would you stand, not with me, but together to read God's Word this morning? We'll just read those first four verses. Psalm 63, beginning in verse 1, God's Word says, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. If your family had no presents this year, would Christmas be the same? Would Christmas feel ruined? What about for your kids and your grandkids? If this year all they had was your love and the knowledge that they had an offer and love of, from a relationship with Jesus, would that be enough to satisfy them? And I'm not asking you that because it's wrong or I want you to feel guilty for buying gifts. I actually think it's quite beautiful to buy generous and thoughtful gifts for people. I'm asking you that primarily because most of us have grown up with a level of prosperity in which we can hardly imagine there being a tree with no gifts around it. We can hardly imagine a Christmas in which we're not buzzing around trying to find everybody the right gifts and, and trying to make sure that we're all taken care of and that everything's good. That, that most of us have, have grown up with a level of prosperity that almost makes it to where gifts are an entitlement, not a gift. And what happens when you grow up with that level of prosperity is all of a sudden the, the emphasis goes off of the giver. It goes off of generosity. It goes off of love and it goes to, well, what am I giving and what, what am I getting? What am I giving and what am I getting? There was a, there's a pastor named Ligon Duncan. He says it like this. I like this. The great trial that we have because we have so much is that we confuse the gift with the giver. And we so enjoy the gifts that have been given to us by the giver that we begin to prefer the gift over the giver. If this, mo this morning, if you took all the gifts away, if you took away all of the traditions, if you took away all of the family members gathered around your table, if this Christmas you had to gather and all of the, the memories were all that you had, and you had Jesus, would that be enough? Would that be enough? Would that satisfy you? And I ask you that this morning because in Psalm 63, that is exactly where David is. It's exactly where David is. David had ascended the throne and he had taken Israel to heights of prosperity that they had never known before. They had conquered lands. They had, they had suppressed their enemies. They had received enormous sums of riches and prosperity. He had one of the mightiest militaries in all of the world and they were expanding at a breathtaking rate. And overnight he loses it all. His 
so he had a son by the name of Absalom. And you can read this. this it, it, let me point out where you get that. So if, you, if you'll notice at the top of Psalm 63, it says a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. When you read the Psalms, it's always important to read that title. It usually is going to give you some context so that you can kind of know where this is coming from. And so we know there were two different times in David's life in which he lived in the wilderness. One in which he was being pursued by Saul so that he wouldn't become the king, and the other so that when he was being pursued by Absalom, his son, so that he might be dethroned as the king. And this one is the latter. We know that because if you'll read in verse 11 there, it identifies uh, David as the king. And so he wouldn't have been identified as the king that would have, this would have been while Saul was pursuing him. So you can read this account in 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 19. And what Absalom, his son, does is Absalom goes and he camps outside the, gate of, the gates of David. And all the, the nation, at that time, the, the king would do judgments for the people, right? And so people would come in, they would have a dispute, or they would be in need of a judgment of some type, and Absalom would, inter, would intercept them. And he would say, well, you know David's not going to see you, right? David doesn't care about what you have going on. David's got bigger fish to fry. David's not worried about your life. David's not worried about your troubles. David's not worried about all the insignificant things. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a king that was? Wouldn't, there be, wouldn't it be nice if you had a king that cared about you? Wouldn't, you have, wouldn't it be nice if you had a king that cared about his people, that, that was interested in your life and the lives of others? And over time, with enough lies, and you can see there at the end of verse 11, it says, for the mouth of liars will be stopped. You can, you can hear uh, an, an allusion to, to Absalom there. Over enough time, what Absalom is able to do is he's able to win over the hearts of the people of Israel. He's able to, able to win over the, the loyalty of the military, the majority of the military. In fact, he wins over the loyalty of David's closest advisor, and so Absalom ascends up to, the, to David's throne and he takes over in residence in David's palace and David is sent running into the wilderness, unsure if he'll ever return again. In fact, David even says, if, if the Lord would have me back, I'll come back. If the Lord would not, I'll die. And so here's David. He's lost his throne. He's lost his son. He's lost his palace. He's lost his prestige. He's lost the loyalty of his people. He's lost his advisors. He's lost his military. All of the great things that we would say makes a great king great. David has lost them all. There's nothing left but a memory for him. And he's running for his life thinking he may lose that too. And so Psalm 63 is written into a context in which many of you can relate this year. Many of us feel like we've lost so much this Christmas. Some of you have lost people that you love over the last year. Some of you lost dreams over the last year. Some of you are like my family right now and you're wrestling with all this COVID stuff and you have, you have elderly family members or you have family members that are immunocompromised and you're trying to figure out if, if you're all going to be able to come together or not or if it's, if it's too much to come together. And it feels like everything's just up in the air. Do you know what God teaches David? That the wilderness will not be wasted. The wilderness will not be wasted. And so here's David wandering in the wilderness, on the run, having lost everything. And God is using the wilderness in David's life to teach David. God is using the wilderness in David's life to deepen David as a man, to, to, to stretch him out and to form him more and more into the man that God had called him to be. And so what David does is David... David begins to, to look around him in the wilderness and to describe what he's feeling by what he sees. Listen to what he says. He says, my soul thirsts for you. 
My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He was literally in a land where there was no water. And he says, you know, I ought to be looking for water. I ought to be concerned about water. But what I'm looking for is I'm looking to be closer to God. I ought to be concerned about where my next meal is coming from, but what I'm concerned about is I'm concerned to draw near to my Lord. I ought to be worried about my protection, but what I'm worried about is, Lord, are you with me? Lord, are you close to me? Lord, do you love me? Lord, do you know that I love you? And I think here we see what the wilderness does. The wilderness makes us thirsty for God. The wilderness makes us thirsty. When we have a tree full of presence and a house full of family, no troubles around the edges, we don't think much about being thirsty. We don't think much about needing God for moment-by-moment survival. We don't think much about needing God for moment-by-moment satisfaction. It's when the presents are taken away. It's when someone we love isn't there anymore. It's when all of the traditions are now in flux and hanging in the balance. It's in those moments that we begin to wonder, oh God, oh God, oh God, here in the, in the depths of my health issues, in the depths of my, of my frustration, in the depths of my grief and in my sorrow, oh God, I'm thirsty for you, I long for you, I yearn for you. So we're only going to cover one of the points, as I, as I mentioned, and that is that thirsty lives crave satisfying love. Thirsty lives crave satisfying love. I think what we see here in the, four, in the first four verses of Psalm 63, I think what it's about is it's about our love for God and God's love for us. It's about our love for God and God's love for us. I think in those first two verses, we're able to, to get at least three questions that we can ask. And what these three questions do is they, form a th- they, they function as a thermometer in our lives so that we can, by answering these questions, we can... We can we're able to be able to tell to a degree how hot or how cold our love for God is. So we can answer these questions. And as we answer these questions, it's a, it's a thermometer of your love. All right, so the first thing I want you to notice here is this word earnestly. Earnestly. Okay, so the word earnestly can actually be translated as early. Early. Matter of fact, the, the KJV, the King James Version, actually can, it actually translates it as, as early. You, you, it could also be translated as eagerly. And so here's the, here's the first question I want you to wrestle with as a thermometer for your love for God is what are you willing to wake up early for? What are you willing to wake up early for? Now, now why is it that these words are interchangeable? You see, the things that I wake up early for are the things that I'm eager about. They're the things that I'm earnest about. They're the things I'm committed to. They're the things I'm resolved to accomplish. So in your life, what what are you willing to wake up early for? Let me tell you, I'm I'm not, I don't have so much in my mind, your boss breathing down your neck saying, if you don't show up tomorrow by 4.30, I'm I'm gonna fire you. I don't have that so much in my my mind, even though, even though I think you could make a case there that even there, you are very earnest about your livelihood. In that case, you're very, you're very serious. You you love what's going on so that you can pay your bills and have food on the table and and be able to have a roof over your head. You're you're serious about that, but I, I don't, have that so much in my mind. But I do think that what you, you're willing to get up early for is an indicator of what you love. And here's why. When I was a kid, my sister and I, my parents' house, my room was down in the basement. 
And so when they were going to set out all of our presents, they would have my sister and I both sleep down in the basement. And then they would like try to block all the block the, the doors so that we couldn't. We were hip to all that. You know what I'm saying? Like they, could, they couldn't stop us. And so what we would do is we would set our alarm for like 2 o'clock in the morning, wake up, and go up there and see all what we got for Christmas, right? We wanted to be, and we would play with that stuff for a couple of hours, you know, and then go back to bed, come up and act surprised when mom and dad were up, right? Act like we had never seen it before. Why did we do that? Because we were serious about it. Because we loved the idea of being able to get all of these things. Because we were very earnest about it. I think about Megan last night. The, the, Megan has been on quarantine for however long, and now she's, she's just not able to go back to work just yet. She's, she's, she's good, but she, just because I had it, she, never, she tested negative the whole time, right? She had to take 24 days off of work for this thing. That's, anyway, it's here, neither here nor there. But this, so the whole time, every morning, Josiah, we have this little hellion in our house that will not sleep, this little jerk of a child, right? Six months in, and he hasn't slept all the way through the night yet, you know? But this morning I hear Megan, she doesn't have to get up probably till 8 o'clock, right? 7.30, 8 o'clock, 5.30, Josiah, this little high-pitched punk squeal that he does, wakes her up. And you know what she does? Do you know how she responds? She picks him up, she takes him into the other room, and she begins to sing to him. He deserved to be hit, not sang to. <laughs> Do you know why she did that? Love, love. She's earnest, right? She's serious about it. He means the world to her. And so, so she's willing to wake up early and exhaust herself and exert herself and, and put herself on the line so that, so that he can receive from her a loving touch of a mother. You think about me, and this, this will contrast the difference between Megan and I right here. Okay, if you asked me, Cody, we need to get up at 5 so we can be at the NASCAR race on time. I'm not getting up. I'm not waking up at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning to go watch guys turn left. I'm not doing it. But, but if you said, hey, Cody, we're, I, I got some free tickets to go out to Farm Links at Purcell Farms. If you, I, we're going to have to get up early, though. We're going to have to be there first thing. And so if we could leave your place about 5 and get over there, we can play all day long. You know what I'd probably, how I would respond? You want to give it 4.30 and go grab a biscuit on the way? Why? It's what I love. It's what I'm serious about. It's what, it's what I'm passionate about. It's what excites me. I'm not saying that if you have your quiet time at night and not in the morning that you love Jesus less. What I'm asking you is, does the thought of Jesus excite you? Are you, are you eager to be with Jesus? Are you eager to meet with him? Are you eager to know him? Do you have energy for God? Do you have energy to draw near to God? Do you have energy to serve God? Do you have energy to bring pleasure to God? Do you have energy to worship God? J.I. Packard, in his book, Knowing God, he says, if there is one distinctive marker of a person, a man or a woman that, that knows God, it is this, that they will have great energy for God. Do you have energy for God? Are you willing to wake, what are you willing to wake up early for? The second question I think that we can get from our text this morning is... Um, what is it that satisfies your cravings? What is it that satisfies your cravings? That if you see the word faints there, faints is, we don't really talk like that. I faint for you, right? 
I, I faint for the Lord. We don't really know what that means. What that means is, is that I yearn for you. Your, your translation may even say that. Or another word that we might say is, I crave to be with you. Like I, I, I long for it. I yearn for it. I'm, I'm energized for it. Here's the reality. And here, 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 this is a good litmus test as to whether or not you have idols in your life or not. What you most want is what you most love. What you most want is what you most love. So, so, so what is it in your life that you crave the most? Is it a bonus check? Have you, been, have you been yearning and craving and obsessing over a bonus check? Is it, is it a raise? Is it a performance review? Is it, is it a, a, a sexual fantasy? Is it a relationship? Is it a child? Is it a husband? Is it a wife? Is it, is it a picture of, of, of Christmas that you, you're holding on to? Or, or, or is it the Lord? That's where David is. David is able to say that the chief desire in my life, the chief yearning, craving in my life is that I would be able to be close to God. Be honest, be honest. In the depths of your heart, is that where you are? Is that where you are? Is that what you're yearning for? Is that what you're obsessing over? Brings us to the final question. He says, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. I've seen it. I've seen your glory. I've seen your power. I saw it in the sanctuary. I'd seen it. I've seen it in the Ark of the Covenant. That is, the, the final question is, is where does your mind drift? Where does your mind drift? Here's, here's why I point that out. So, so in 2 Samuel chapter 15, David is leaving Jerusalem, and it's really a sad scene. It's really a sad scene. He's leaving, and they've got the Ark of the Covenant, and they're chasing, and, and he's going off into exile where he'll be separated from everything that he knows and everything that he loves and everything really and honestly that he's earned. And he, sa- he stops and he says, no, 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 no. Take the Ark of the Covenant back to the tabernacle. Take the Ark back to the tabernacle. And he says, I don't know if I'll ever see it again. If, I see, if, the, if the Lord wills that I see it, I'll see it. If the Lord wills that I never see it again, I'll never see it again. And so here is David, and he's in the wilderness. And he, he, he can remember seeing the cloud of God's glory descending upon the tabernacle. He can, he can remember seeing God's power and glory in a, in a physical manifestation, the Shekinah glory of God there. And here he is in this lonely night, wondering if he'll ever see it again. Needing it. Needing the movement of God in his life. That is, he was in the wilderness, but his mind was in the sanctuary. Do you see this? He, he, it wasn't like now where the, present, the, the, the Spirit of God is with us all everywhere. He, the Spirit of God dwelt in the sanctuary or dwelt in the tabernacle. But here he was in the wilderness and his mind had, had wandered back to the sanctuary. He, he should have been thinking about his problems. He wasn't worried about his problems. He should have been thinking about his enemies, but he wasn't thinking about his enemies. He should have been thinking about what he was having to do without. He wasn't thinking about what he had to do without. He should have been trying to scheme and strategize on how he was going to get himself out of this. But his mind was not wandering to all of those things. His mind was wandering and drifting toward the glory of God. What about you? Calvin says this. He says that there is a type of false religion in which we go to church. And as long as we're in church, we enjoy thoughts about God. But when we leave the church, we leave our thoughts right there. 
and we move on to other things. That there, there is a type of false religion in which we can come and we can enjoy hearing about the love of God and enjoy hearing about the grace of God and enjoy hearing about the mercy of God. We can enjoy singing Christmas songs. We can enjoy hearing a rousing sermon. We can enjoy all of those things, but then when we get home, it's the furthest thing from our mind. When we go to work on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, our minds don't drift toward our Lord. Our minds drift toward our pursuits, toward our aspirations, toward our ambitions, toward our problems, toward our, our, uh, all of the distractions that we know in this world. And what it's saying is this is a false religion. No, those whose hearts are in love with God, those whose hearts yearn for God, those who have lived lives that thirst for God, know their minds are drifting toward God always. So when you're like David, when everything's been stripped away, when all the things that you love are gone, when all of the day is behind you, when there's nothing left to do, when you're just in the, the darkness of the night laying in your bed, where does your mind drift? Where does your mind drift? You see, I told you, these are, these are a thermometer of our heart for God, of our, our love for Him. And here's what I imagine. I imagine that most of you are like me, and it keeps coming up cold. Far colder than we think it should. Far colder than what, is, what, what God deserves and is, His name is worthy of. And I told you in the beginning that this is about our love for God and God's love for us. But brothers and sisters, if that's where you are, if you are where I am, and you would say, man, every question I kept coming up cold, every question I kept coming up short, here's the good news. Psalm 63 is far more about God's love for you than it is about your love for Him. Psalm 63 is far more about God's love for you than it is about your love for him. Because he says, because your steadfast love, that's God's, is better than life, my lips will praise you. Because your steadfast love is better than life. So if steadfast love, we don't, we don't use the word steadfast, I'm going to be immovable and steadfast before you. We don't, we don't talk about that like that very often, right? Here's what that means. It means loyal. The, the net translation uses the word loyal. I think that, that, that makes more sense to us. And I really think that gets to the essence of what David has in mind. You, you want to know what I think the, the way I think the best, uh, the best way for us to understand God's love is? Is for us not to compare it to the way that we love, but to contrast it with the way that we love. By contrasting God's love with the way that we love, we begin to clear up the picture and clarify how profound it is that God loves us and, and how deep God's love for us and how otherworldly God's love for us actually is. Here's what I mean. Think about what it means that David would say, because your loyal love is better than life. First of all, what has David lost? He's lost everything in his life. He's lost everything in his life. And how did David lose everything in his life? David lost everything in his life. Why? Because he was betrayed by his son. He was betrayed by his advisors. He was betrayed by his military. He was betrayed by his people. He was living in utter betrayal. Many of you live like that. Some of y'all were married this time last year and you're not married this year because your husband or your wife betrayed you. Some of you had a best friend at the beginning of this year that you don't have as a friend at all anymore because they betrayed you. 
Some of you were employed at a place, of, uh, at a job that you thought was going to be your career for the long haul. And you're not there anymore because they betrayed you. Some of you are at a church that's different than the church you're in now because they, be, they betrayed you. Some of you, you remember, your, your memories of Christmas growing up is one, two, three years old, whole happy family, all the gifts, everything was great and wonderful. And then four, five, six, dad was never in the picture again. And Christmas took on a different meaning. And Christmas felt much more painful. And your dad betrayed you. If you've experienced betrayal, if you know what it's like to have the knife between your shoulder blades, if you, if you know what it's like to have somebody that you thought loved you unconditionally and would love you relentlessly and that person turn on you, now you're ready to understand the love of God. Because God's love, brothers and sisters, is nothing like that at all. God has loved you purely, consistently, and perfectly since before the foundations of the earth, the word, the word says. That his love for you cannot increase. His love for you will not de decrease. His love is actually unconditional. His love is actually relentless. His love will actually be true to you. It will not betray you like a child will. It will not betray you like a husband will. It will not betray you like a friend will. It will not betray you like a job will. It will not betray you like your pastor might. It will not betray you like any man's love. It will love you relentlessly and perfectly forever as it always has. Christmas is calling you into it. It's calling you forward. But that's not the only way. It's not just contrasting it with how we've been loved. It's contrasting it with how we've loved God. With how we've loved God. Notice in verse 1 what he says. He says, oh God, you are my God. Oh God, you are my God. David personalizes this, right? He, he, may, he brings this home into his kitchen and he says, you are mine. You're not just some God. You're not somebody's God. You're not just a great God. You're not just a glorious God. You're not just a powerful God. You are my God. You are my God. Now, why is he saying it like that? If you remember back in the big story when we were in Exodus and we were in Exodus 32 and God is, is establishing the covenant with his people of Israel, what, what, is the, what is the words of the covenant say? What is the, the essence of the covenant? I will be your God and you will be my people. Do you know what's happened in, in Psalm 63? Psalm 63 is a dark wilderness in David's life, but it is the culmination of David's own sin. That's the, that's, the, that's the kicker of the whole thing. Yes, David's having a hard time. Yes, the, David's being treated by his son in a way he shouldn't be treated by his son. But it is the result of his own sin, starting back with the sin with his, when he sleeps with Bathsheba. After David has an affair with Bathsheba, four of his children die. Four of his children, including ultimately Absalom. So in the forefront of David's mind here is not just what Absalom has done to him. It's how God has, it's how David has betrayed God. It's how he, he has sinned against the Lord. It's amazing how little it takes for us to abandon the Lord, isn't it? It's amazing what, what can catch our eye, like Bathsheba catching David's eye, and cause us to turn away from the Lord. I, 
So one of the things you may not know about me is I'm a little bit of an espionage junkie, all right? Like I just, I don't know. I, I told the first service, y'all learn every week a little bit more how nerdy I am. Um, but I, I'm kind of an espionage, espionage uh, junkie. And so I love to, to read and, and, uh, and, and, and listen to podcasts about, about spotting all, all that kind of stuff. Like, that's just my world. And there's this, there's this one guy named Rick, Rick Akins, and he was uh, a, a spy, or he was a, a middle manager in the CIA back in the 60s and the 70s, really at the height of the Cold War. But now Rick was very underwhelming. He was not a good employee. He was lazy. They say he wasn't particularly bright. He'd kind of gotten grandfathered into the CIA because his dad was a CIA agent. Well, he gets passed over for promotion after promotion after promotion within the CIA, and he begins to turn bitter. And so what Rick decides that he's going to do is he's going to get his recognition one way or the other. He's going to get his due one way or the other. He's going to get his money one way or the other. And so he begins to take all the information that he has access to with his, with his uh, security clearance, and he begins to offer and sell it over to the Russians. He's selling who our, uh, who our spies are overseas. He's selling our tactical plans. He's giving them just general information. Over enough time, he becomes the most prolific spy, Russian spy of the whole Cold War. And he was an employee and an, of, of an, an employed American of the CIA. Now, what do you think about that? He sold out his fellow countrymen. He sold out the, the men and women that he worked with. He sold out his nation for spite. Something so small, something so petty. Brothers and sisters, that's what we do to God every day. Every day. Every day we see, see a, we, we, we yearn for the approval and the likes on Facebook and we are selling out God's glory for a few more approvals. We, we see or notice a, a lady at the gym and we begin to, to lust after her and perhaps even initiate a relationship with her and we are selling out God, God's glory for something so small and so petty. I wonder if you look in your life, I, I guarantee what you'll find is you won't find any sin in your life that is the result of some grandiose plan. What you'll find is a million little ways in which you have betrayed the glory of God for things that are seemingly insignificant. But you want to know something? God has never wavered in his love for you anyway. David had betrayed God, but God had refused to betray David. He had remained steadfast and loyal. And it is against the backdrop of your own sinfulness. It is against the backdrop of your own corruption. It is against the backdrop of your own disloyalty to God that you are able to understand that God has been remarkably, powerfully, sovereignly, unwaveringly devoted to you. That he loves you even though you've betrayed him. He loves you even though you've turned and pretended like he wasn't there. He loves you even though you've been ashamed to talk about him. He loves you. And so David, here in the wilderness, he comes to this conclusion. That if you take everything I've lost and you add it together. If you take my son whom I love. David loved his son so much that when Absalom dies, David weeps and sobs. The son that tried to kill him, he weeps and he sobs and he says, oh God, if it had been my life rather than his, 
He loved his son, but he lost him. His son, his, his, his palace, his kingdom, his advisors, his military, the love and admiration of all the people. He says, if I take all of that, if I take all of life and I add it together, it does not equal what I have in you. Your steadfast love is better and greater and grander than life itself. I know many of you, if you're going to be serious to follow Jesus, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. For many of you, it's going to cause your family to look at you like you're the black sheep. For, for some of you, it's going to mean that you lose friends. For some of you, it means that you're going to be persecuted at work. For, for some of you, you've lost everything and you, you don't really even know why. You're like Job. You've lost your health and you've lost your wealth and you've lost, you've lost your, your family and, and you're left there. And you don't really even know how it happened. You, don't even, you didn't do anything. You didn't see anything. You didn't say anything. It just happened. And it's easy in that moment to begin to compromise. But if you take all of that you've lost, whether it's from following Jesus or it's for no reason that you can reconcile in your own mind, and you add it all together and you try to equate it to the steadfast love of God, what you will find is that the steadfast, loyal love of God outweighs it every single time. You see, Christmas was born out of the love of God. Christmas was born out of the love of God. Listen to what he says, for God so what? Loved the world that he gave the original gift, his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That, that Christmas, in other words, with Jesus' advent, is the verification of how seriously loyal God's love toward us is. That when Jesus came to be born to that virgin, he came to be born to that virgin, that he ultimately might find himself on that cross. And that, that, brothers and sisters, is flesh over the promises of God. It is flesh over the love of God. It is the outward evidence of the eternal reality that your God will never betray you, never forsake you, never abandon you. He loves you. And that's why for Christmas, it's appropriate for us to gather around the Lord's table for communion. It's, it's because we aren't just remembering a baby that was born. We're remembering a baby that came as God, as the God-man who took my place and your place according to the love of God, that he condescended. His body was broken, why? Because of love. His blood was spilled, why? Because of love. And so this morning, we're gonna come together and we're gonna remember that. We're gonna remember that. And by us remembering that, it is an offering of love back to the Lord. So here's what I invite you to do. I want you to bring to the forefront of your mind all of the different ways that you've sold out for the kingdom of God, or you've sold out the kingdom of God for the kingdom of earth. I want you to bring to the forefront of your mind all of the way that your affections and your passions and your love for God has cooled off. I want you to bring to the forefront of your mind all the ways that you have failed in the way that you love God. And I want you to say, oh God, I am a sinner. Have mercy on me. Forgive me. And then what I want you to do is I want you to bring to the forefront of your mind how different God's love for you is than your love for him. 
I want you to bring to the forefront of your mind how perfect it is. I want you to bring to the forefront of your mind how loyal it is. I want you to bring it to the forefront of your mind for how unconditional and steadfast it is. And I want you to watch as the good news of God's love overcomes the weakness and the wavering nature of your own love for Him. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon. 